Father, I just wanna, I want us to take some time to acknowledge who you are and, and that you are worthy of praise and honor and glory. Lord, there is no one like you. In all of the cosmos, there's no one like you. There's never been anyone like you. You are uniquely God. You are uniquely able to hear the prayers of the people. You are uniquely able to answer those prayers. You are uniquely able to guide us, to shape us, to encourage us, to lead us closer to your son. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning, for those of us who are already here, and for those of us who are in transit, that whatever amount of the word they hear this morning, it would do its work. That your promise that the word would never return void would be true for them in a tangible way. We know that Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 tell us that the word will never return void, but I desire, Lord, to see and hear how its word had effective fruit in the hearts and minds of people. And so I pray that as your word goes forth, as we hear from you this morning, we would see and feel changed by your word. Many of us have had really long weeks, myself included, and we are in need of refreshing from your spirit, Lord. Would you grant us refreshing this morning? Lord, you are the only one worthy of our praise, and we will grant all of it unto you as much as we have awareness to know. May we give all glory, all praise, all honor to you and you alone, Lord. You are worthy of it all. Lord, I pray for that one individual in here who doesn't think that you are Lord and Savior of all things. I pray for that one person who is questioning whether or not they know you, whether or not they believe this gospel truth. Would it be true for you today? Lord, would you penetrate that heart against that person's will? And would you draw them closer to you? They know who they are, Lord. You see not give that information to all men, but they know who they are. And if they don't know who they are, Lord, I pray that it become evident to them through the proclamation of your word and that they would draw nearer to you and they would come to know you and love you. We have nothing to offer but our praise, Lord, our bodies as living sacrifice. Take them, for they are yours. Fix everything we want to do in this place. Fix this sermon, Lord. I want what you want me to say to come out, more than anything I've prepared. Lord, you are worthy, you are awesome, and you are to receive all glory. In Jesus' name, we thank you and pray. Amen. Y'all can hear me clearly? Am I echoey? Am I good? Because I can't tell back here. Y'all got to give me some feedback. We good? Cool, cool, cool. Well, it's good to be back at Walton again for a second time, kids. I hope y'all got y'all's little fill-in sheet because 
you need to be filling in some of this information. Good morning, Pillar Church, and good morning to all you guys uh, watching online. Pastor Kanan here. I want to call our minds back to your first impression of Pillar Church. You see, a lot of us have impressions of things. Sometimes your first impression is good. Sometimes your first impression is bad. And usually we remember the bad first impressions more than we remember the good first impressions. But I want you to think back of that, that, that thing or that person that left that impression on you here at Pillar. What was that thing? What was that impression? Think about it. What impressed you the most? What was the most unimpressive thing about us here at Pillar? What were your thoughts when you first stepped into the school? For some of you, when you first stepped into the warehouse. For others of you, when we first stepped foot on that hot field. For others of you, when you watched online for the first time. God's done a lot with us in the last year, has he not? We are in a lot of places. But what was your first impression? What were the first thoughts that ran through your mind as you stepped foot among the people of God that gathered at Pillar that particular week or this particular week and you looked out and you observed with your eyes, you felt with your senses, what was it that you felt, that you heard, that you saw? What was the adjective? What was the name, the noun? What was it? What was it that you remembered? What is it that you recall? So when someone said, what was it like at the place of worship where you went that week? You would say it was blank. The first thing to come out of your mouth. What was that? The thing about impressions is that you only get one shot to leave a first one. And usually that first one is really, really memorable. And usually we define whatever it is we're engaging with by that first impression. Even if things change the week following and the week after that, we usually gauge things by the first impression. We often pray here at Pillar Church, we pray that the first impression you have of us has little to do with our amenities. I don't want our first impression or our impression uh, in your mind's eye to have anything to do with our aesthetics or lack thereof. I don't want that to be what's lasting in your mind, and I hope that wasn't what was lasting in your mind. I hope it had little to do with the talented singers or the gifted orator or speaker that particular week. I hope none of that is what left a lasting impression in your heart and in your mind. That's not worth leaving an impression for. To be sure, there's nothing wrong with good aesthetics. There's nothing wrong with accommodating amenities. There's nothing wrong with air conditioning, amen? We got it this week, bruh. It's on. Nothing wrong with those things. But those things can't be the thing, the comfortable seats that you're currently sitting in. Comfortable, right? That you're currently sitting in, that can't be the thing that you take away from your, your, your participation in gathering with the saints at Pillar. I hope it's not. I don't want it to be. I want to turn your mind's eye to something else. This is what we pray for often as elders for you. We pray that as gathering here as Pillar Church, you would look closer to Jesus and each other. That's what we want the lasting impression to be. You came in and you were encouraged to get closer to Jesus because you saw an authentic people of God worshiping him full of flaws, but willing to lay those upon the cross of Christ. Authenticity, I hope you remember. I hope you remember the name Jesus because we say it a whole lot because his name is the name that matters. 
I pray and we pray that we saw an authentic people in love with a powerful God. And you were compelled by the spirit of God to walk with these people into closer proximity to Jesus. And that we set an example in your heart and in your mind's eye for these three things, for love, for faith and good works. This morning, we're going to look at example. We're going to look at an example of a church who leads in this way in love and faith and in good works. We're going to look at the church of Thessalonica this morning. And I pray that as we look at this first chapter of First Thessalonians, that we are compelled for more, that we want more Jesus by the end of this reading, this, this section, that we want more faithful witness to his name, and that we are encouraged to love one another more than we were when we came up in this joint. So go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of First Thessalonians. We're going to look at chapter, two through, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. You should find it in your cross-reference sheet, and we're going to be alluding to that sheet throughout the message. Now, as you're turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want us to start by looking at, before we look at how the Thessalonians lived, I want to look at the, I want to take notice of the channel by which their faith walk was empowered. Remember what I said, this Thessalonian church is going to be an example for us in how they lived. But before we look at how they lived, I want you to see their power source. What enabled them to live how they lived? That's in verse 2. Look at it. Paul says this in verse 2. He says, we always thank God for you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. Stop there. There are two themes in this verse that empowered the church at Thessalonica to be what it was. The first is thanksgiving. There was a disposition of thankfulness flowing to and fro that particular church that Paul remembers. He says, I always thank God for you. He's thankful for them. But the second one, the one we really need to highlight, is the channel of prayer. Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy prayed consistently for the church and its impact in the region. And as a result of their consistent prayer and the working of the Spirit of God, we saw a, a, a powerful people of God gathered together that was impactful in their community and in the lives of the people that gather there both. I've walked the streets of East Fort Worth long enough to know that this is what our community desires. Our community wants a powerful movement of God that benefits people individually in the community as a whole. They want a holistic impact led by God through his church. But that work through the church doesn't happen in a vacuum. But our minds, for some reason, believe it does. Let me ask you an honest question. How often is it that you pray for your church? Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy are praying consistently for the church at Thessalonica, and it's reaping great fruit. And my question to you is how often do you get on your knees and beg of God in hopes of provoking his hand to move in and through this church? That church, the churches in this area. You know what part of the human condition is? Part of the human condition is complaining that the church isn't moving, yet no one's prayerful that the church would move. No one's fueling the church with prayer. 
The human condition is to tear down and point fingers while we stand comfortably on the sidelines, hoping and praying that someone does the work. But God has called people, namely you and me, to be prayerful that God would work in and through this place in a holistic way. But you got to pray because if it's in our own strength, if you leave it to your elders alone to serve this community, we will fail you. If we leave it to our deacons alone to serve this community, we will fail you. Understand, we need to be led by the Spirit of God. We need you to pray for us, and you need to pray for yourself to be impactful in your community. Pray that your elders have prophetic-like insight into the plight and the remedies that burden you and the community. You want to know what to pray for? Pray that your elders have prophetic-like insight into the plight and the remedies of the community around us. Pray for us that we could see these things. You want to pray? Pray that your elders are theologically sound, ready, able, and willing to refute any false teaching that is nipping at your heels as the people of God. Pray that our eyes are open to the cults and the false teaching in the community so that we can guard you from these things. That's part of our role. Remember, we talked about elders and deacons, right? And part of the elders' role is to refute false teaching and the protecting of you, the sheep. Pray. You know why? Because your elders get discouraged sometimes and they don't read sometimes and they don't understand sometimes. It doesn't matter how, how sharp my mental faculties are. If the Spirit of God is with me, we can protect you. We can love you. Pray for that. Pray that your elders are able to see the needs in our church body and the community and that we as a church have the resources and the know-how to send deacons to remedy aid to those particular areas of people in our neighborhood. Pray that Pillar Church would raise up right men and women as deacons so that we could serve each other and serve this community well. Pray that you, yourself, would stop being a sideline watcher and a finger pointer to the church at large. You know what we do? We, we brought, well, the church. Who? You realize that if you're a Christian, you are the church. Point that mug right at you. Pray that, God would st pray that God would change your heart and mind to be an active participant in what he's doing in and around where you live and where you serve. You, as the people of God, prayer is important, y'all. And he can push you, he can pull you, he can motivate you, he can instruct you. You need prayer, though, if we're going to be impactful in this, in this in here. We need prayer. Be a people of prayer. God calls this house a house of Prayer before anything else. Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy in verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, pray. Hear me when I say this. If you want your church to make a difference in your life and in the life of your community, you must pray in hopes of provoking the hand of God to empower her. If you want your church to make a difference in your life, your life, you, and in the community where you live and serve, then you must pray in hopes of provoking God's hand to empower her to do so. The proof is in the pudding, y'all. 
God has called us here to serve each other, to serve the body as a whole, and to serve this community. And your prayers will show me how much you truly care and love about this community. And as we watch God work in and through you and in and through his church, we'll see, oh, the people up in this joint care because they give up their precious time in prayer. Prayer is powerful. And as you pray, there'll be a legacy and an impression that we leave on this community, an indelible mark that will never be erased. Because when God moves, history can never erase such things, no matter how hard they try. They've been trying to erase Jesus since he, was, since he died, bro. And he came back, it was like, nah. Look what Paul remembers about the church at Thessalonica. Firstly, we see that they prayed for them. They were fueled by prayer. But look at verse 3. This is what Paul remembers about them in verse 3. He says, we recall, right? Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy. These are the three people who are, who are sending this letter. We recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. Notice that Paul says nothing about their aesthetics. Paul does not remember what the visitor gift bag was. That's, that's, that's not even Trishary in his list. Paul remembers their faith, their love, and their hope. Why these things? Hear me. Why does he remember those things? Those things are crucial. Why? Because hurting and searching hearts need more substance than a comfortable seat, nice signage, and air conditioning. You need more substance for your soul than any amenity can offer you. The souls of men and women need the veracity of love, hope, and faith in Jesus if you are to be changed by him and move closer to him. You need that power behind you. If you come here for amenities, you will leave quickly. But the people who come because they know they need a work of God in their life come to hear and to see and to experience faith, love, and hope in Jesus. That's why you're here. Even if you didn't know why you were here, you went out on a limb and just showed up on Sunday. Know that this is the underlying yearning underneath the, the lostness of your soul, that you need faith, love, and hope in the person of Jesus. That's what you're unable to decipher in and of yourself. God's word told you what you need and what you're after. Let's look at those three things. Firstly, Paul remembered that their work was produced by faith. That's what we see in Verse three, right? He says that he remembers their work produced by faith. Authentic faith is restless faith. You'll see some verses for that in your cross-reference sheet. When I say restless faith, I mean restless in the sense that it cannot lay idle for too long. Authentic faith has to move. It has to act. It has to work. It has to grow. Things that are living grow. Things that are living move, they act, they do. Authentic faith is living faith. Dead, dead faith is content with lying still for long periods of time. Dead faith is the one that's content with being wherever it is you are. You know your faith is authentic 
in part, if you have a desire within your soul to grow closer to Jesus, that's a great thing. You're not where you want to be. Okay? Cool. Me neither. We're not where we want to be. But we don't sit in the shame of not being where we want to be. We press forward in trying to get closer to him inch by inch if necessary. But that's a good thing that your soul craves to get closer to Jesus. And I don't mean, and let me, let me clear this, I don't mean every second of your life. There are seconds when you cave to sin. You have. There's, there, there, are, there are moments when you are just far from God. This is true. But if the general trajectory of your life is to repent and turn back unto God and try to get closer to him, that's living faith. God's word is pruning that dead aspect off of you so that you can grow new leaves and flourish, flourish anew in him. To be clear, this is not faith in people. And this is not faith in faith itself that motivated the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians didn't have faith in people. They didn't have faith in faith. It was faith in Jesus, right? The end of verse three, that's what you see, in the Lord Jesus. It was faith in him that motivated them to move forward. He's the motivator for them. See, faith in people is weak. If you've ever put faith in people, y'all gonna hear me. Faith in people is weak. Faith in people is tiring. Faith in people is disillusioning as soon as they start acting like people around you. Right, because people gonna act like people. I'm a person, I know I be acting like that too. Right? You put faith in someone, and then if someone lets you down, and then you blame God for the person letting you down when your faith was in them and not in him. You got it all backwards. If you're here this morning and you're one of those people who have been putting in work in this community for its health and for its restoration for this great city, I want to urge you in this. Do not put your faith in people. Don't put your faith, hold your, don't, put, don't put all your eggs in the basket of human or humanity. God will use the humans to do stuff, but don't put all your eggs in people. People will be people. It's been like that since Adam and Eve. It's like that this morning. People will be people. But let your faith be in Jesus to produce the work in you that he's called you to. This is not in your cross-reference sheet, but if you want to write it down, fine. Remember the words of Ephesians 2.10, where God tells us as Christians, he says, we are his workmanship. In Greek, that's poema. Poema means his poem. It means that he wrote us. He, he created us. He intimately made us, right? We are his workmanship, and he created us for good works, which he predestined for us to do. The text says that Paul remembered their work produced by faith, and then it says he remembered their motivated by love, or their, love, uh, their labor motivated by love. That's verse three, right? Their labors motivated by love. The love that the Thessalonians displayed, this has to be true of us too, hear this. The love that the Thessalonians displayed was an outworking of God's love for them. I wanna try to flesh that out for you in a minute, right? The, the love that they displayed is an outworking of God's love for them. We see that in verse four, that how God loved them and that they had a love that was, mo their labor that was motivated by love. And so their labor is motivated by love and their love is an outworking of God's love for them. Let me give you a verse to help you. It's in your cross-reference sheet. First John four nineteen. You see what it says? This is how it flows out. I'm going to keep, keep flushing it out. We love, why? Because they loved us? 
because so-and-so loves us, because so-and-so did for us. You see, you can eliminate everything else. Why do we love? What's the chief motivation of our love? We love why? Because he, God, first loved us. I don't care if you have a vertical interpretation of that passage or a horizontal interpretation of that passage. Doesn't matter. It's both. We love God because he first loved us, and we love others because he first loved us. Because he first loved us, it gives us the fuel to pour out into others. You see, love or to love someone is to deeply care for and seek the best for somebody. Let's just give that a blanket definition, a quick one. It's, it's, not, it's not robust, but it's a quick one. To love someone is to deeply care for and seek the best for someone. To labor, which it says their labor is motivated by love, right? To labor for someone is to self-sacrifice toward their benefit, okay? To labor for someone is to self-sacrifice, to give up of yourself, not for your benefit, not for mutual benefit, for their benefit, right? We see both qualities in the church of the Thessalonica, in the, in the church of Thessalonica, because we see both qualities in their Savior. Both of those are squarely on the shoulders of Christ. Jesus loved us by seeking our very best, namely by revealing himself to us. Because God didn't have to reveal anything to anyone, but he reveals himself to us to know us for, uh, uh, as an act of love. And then he labored for us. How? By sacrificing himself upon that bloody cross and imputing his righteousness. Whose righteousness? Not yours. His. He does what he wants with his righteousness. And he imputes it. He gives it to us. He subtracts ours, uh, our sin and he gives us his righteousness. It's not your good works plus his righteousness equals favor with God. No, you have no good works. You have <laughs> not everything you do is filthy rags according to Isaiah, right? We're tainted. So what Jesus does is he subtracts our, our tainted righteousness and replaces it with his imputation. For whose benefit? Us. Yes. God didn't need to do that. God did not, quote unquote, benefit from us. What did he benefit? A beating? Getting his beard ripped out, crucifixion? That's a benefit. No, God's desire was to display his love to us, and so he gave of himself so that we could benefit from his love and he would enjoy us for all eternity. We're the beneficiaries of God's sacrifice because he could have been content in heaven communing by himself as the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He would have been good. But God wants to show things and, and magnify his, his, his glory in, 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 in beautiful ways, and, and that's one of them. You see, it's Jesus' divine labor of love that ought to motivate us to love. If it, would, it would give us the ability to love one another even when that love is not reciprocated back to us. Because this is how Jesus loved us. This has to be true in our relationships with one another. This has to be true with our relationship in our community. We have to be able to love without receiving love back as a mandatory requirement for us to display it forward. We have to. And the motivating factor for that is this. 
the love of God ought to compel us to love and labor with all of our might, never needing it in return from those we serve because our love buckets have been filled with the reality of Jesus' love that he displayed for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's when you're no longer cross-eyed that you can't see straight. When we're no longer focused on the cross and the sacrifice and the love of Jesus that we think we have the right to demand love from others when their love never satisfies in the first place. And so it's this pit of emptiness that you continuously uh, demand from your community and your spouse and your children that they need to love you a certain way. And even when they do, you're not satisfied because that love was never built to satisfy you. And so we're looking for love in all the wrong places, forgetting that it's Jesus' love that motivates us to love without asking for it in return from the thing that we're serving and laboring for. That's why we can labor and labor and labor and labor. Community give us no props? Cool. We're going to keep laboring and laboring. Spouses, no props? Cool. Labor. Why? I'm not doing it for your love. Your love doesn't fill my bucket. My bucket is unfillable by your love. Take that off your spouse. Take that off of them. They can't fill you. They can do good things. They can help you. You can be joyful. You can love each other. But they'll never fill you. The love of Jesus on the cross of Christ fills. But what we do is we start looking everywhere else for this love. I want love. We let the culture tell us what we're supposed to get our love from. Bump that. We get it from where the text tells us to get it from. We are motivated by love of our Lord Jesus Christ, who displayed it, if you ever questioned it. He sacrificed himself labor for our benefit upon the cross 2,000 years ago. Ain't none of y'all willing to do what he did, including me. His love is deep. It's real. It's powerful. It's historical. It's redemptive. That's the love you need. That's the love your eyes need to be fixed on. That. This is called being satisfied in Jesus. That's what that is. Being, it's hard because our eyes are looking everywhere else. No, focus, focus. I found myself wanting to fill my bucket with all kind of nonsense. No, focus, focus. If you are a person who's overly influenced by the love of others, whether they do or don't love you, whether the love they do or don't show you, I urge you to reacquaint your heart and mind with the Gospels that we find in our 27 New Testament books. Open up the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and read the, God, read the, the sacrifice, the Passion Week of Jesus, over and over and over until that mug hit. And you realize that was for you. For me? For me? Just let it hit. Just read it and read it and read it slowly. Read it introspectively. Read it carefully. Read one verse and then sit in that mug for five minutes. And then read the next verse and sit in that mug for another five. Let it do its perfect work in you. But reacquaint yourself with the gospel of Christ. Otherwise, you'll be looking for love in the wrong places and be unsatisfied your whole life. But Jesus' love is tried, true, and faithful. Verse 3 continues. He says, Paul recalled their work produced by faith their labor that was motivated by love, and their endurance that was inspired by hope. This is big. I really hope God says this about Pillar one day, yo. This is dope. Oh, y'all ain't reading the same Bible, bro, I swear. (laughs) Understand this about hope. Understand this about faith, too, but understand this about hope. 
Hope is only as good as the substance you put it in. You heard that? Hope is only as good. So is faith. Faith and hope are only as good as the substance you... I got faith I'm going to fly to Australia right now. You laugh, but faith moves nothing here, right? Hope means nothing here. I am not built to fly like this. Doesn't matter. The substance isn't, isn't up to the task. Hope is only as good as the substance you're putting your hope in. That's it. The Thessalonians don't have hope in hope. That's what we do. I just hope. No. They're not hoping in some feeble generic concept of everything will be all right. That's weak. That's weak sauce. Stop hoping like that. Well, I just hope. What's that? Hoping what? How's it going to happen? Oh, it's just going to work out. Okay. Watch when it don't. What did they have hope in? They had hope in a God who was able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. That's what they had hope in. It says that they had hope in a God who says that the gates of hell will never prevail against them. What you don't know about the Thessalonian church, which we'll read in a minute, is that they were under heavy persecution. And when Jesus makes a promise that the gates of hell will never overcome his church as the church under persecution, that's the promise we grab hold to and kick anybody up off that mug to try to take it from us. Gates of hell can't, can't prevail. I'm holding you to that, Jesus. I'm holding on to this. I need this, mug. I need this. I need this. They don't just have hope. Well, I think we'll be all right next time. No, they remind the saints. Jesus said. The gates of hell, never to prevail. How do you know his word is bond? My man rose from the dead. Let's we talk about it in a minute. They have hope in a God who is described as being faithful and true, Revelation 19, 11. They have hope in the one who bench-pressed death, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4. He alone has the power to save, not laws. Your obedience to the law can't save you because you've already broken it. And the scriptures teach that if you've broken one, you've broken them all. And there's nothing you can do to rectify the broken law that lay in your past. Laws can't save you. Your good behaviors that you say, oh, I'm going to do better, that can't save you. Oh, I'm going to do better. What about the dirt in the back? Who's going to sweep that up? Oh, I'm going to do better. Not your watery hopes based on flaky commitments. None of that saves you. Jesus, by grace, through faith alone, redeems, saves, changes us. Paul says in verse 3, he says, We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance. They're enduring, and it's inspired by hope. Where? Their faith is in something, their, their, uh, their faith is in something, their, their love is in something, their hope is in something. What's it in? The end of verse 3. It's in Jesus. He doesn't fail. He always comes through. His promises are yes and amen. May not be what you want, but his promises are sure. And we stand on those when we are weak and shaky. We stand on those when the world is confusing and hurtful. We stand on what he says alone. Verse 4, it says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Verse 5, Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit 
and in full assurance. Stop there. Now, quickly, let me say this. We're not expositing the whole book of Thessalonians. If we were, I would spend a a whole week on these three things alone. But I want to summarize what Paul is saying and what he's getting at based on the context of the history of the Thessalonian church and the passage grammatically itself. Paul is saying, I know that you guys have been chosen by God because when I preached my gospel to you, there was an immediate impact and the impact was seen through power, the Holy Spirit and full assurance. What's Paul doing? Paul is contrasting his message of salvation by grace through faith for all who believe, which the charlatans message, there was charlatans in the church of Thessalonica trying to woo and sway people unto a false gospel. They would persuade people by flattering some, meanwhile demeaning others. Let me say this, listen to this. If you come across a so-called message of salvation that has to tear some people down in order to lift you up, it's a false gospel. Okay, I want to say that again. Hear that, listen to this. Because the hood, the cults in the hood, it does this. Fake gospel, not good news. Listen, if, you're, if you come across a message of hope or salvation that has to tear some people down in order to lift you up, it is a false gospel. All the tearing down and lifting up needed for your salvation took place at the cross of Christ. That's it. Down with sin, Satan, and lies, all laying under the shadow of the Son of God lifting high. I shouldn't have to demean any of y'all to give you the good news of Christ. Anybody from any tribe, tongue, or nation, anybody with any weight or height or depth, anybody with sins in their closet, I shouldn't have to tear you anywhere. I just got to lift the Savior high, and everything lies under its shadow. Otherwise, it's not good news. Don't let the flattering talk of the charlatans sway you. Look at Romans 16 says in your cross-reference sheet. I highlighted this in my Bible at one point because it's just 16 and 17 and 18 Romans. It says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them. Then he says this, because such people don't serve the Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Let me stop there before I read the rest. I'm not interested in people joining Pillar Church as much as I am interested in them coming to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. We ain't in here for our own gain. That's why we have a plurality of elders who can call each other out as soon as we start getting sinfully selfish with the things that are going on with the church. No, we want God's glory alone. And if somebody is swaying you unto them and them alone, they're saving you to them. They're not saving you to the Lord. That's a problem. That's a false gospel. Look what he says. He says they deceive the hearts. Verse 18, the end of it. It says these charlatans, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. Everything we say from this pulpit, you hold up to the light of Scripture and you sift it. Is it true? Obey it. If it's false, challenge it. If you question it, research it. But the word of God is my final authority and yours. Everything goes through it. Guys, if Jesus be not lifted up, this is what the text tells us. If Jesus, be not, if Jesus be not lifted up, it's a false gospel and it doesn't have the power to save your souls or to reconcile a divided community. It just doesn't. 
It won't. Verse 5 says this. He says, for you know how we lived among you for your benefit. Right? He's talking about a mutual labor of love there. Verse 6 says, and you yourselves, church of Thessalonica, you became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Paul is commending the Thessalonians here. Stop there. Paul is commending the Thessalonians here for, re- for their reception of the gospel in, sight, in spite of trials and tribulations. If you're a Christian in here this morning, I want you to hear this. We live on earth just like everybody else. Trials and tribulations are sure to come for all of you. Keep on living. If you haven't had what you can define as trials and tribulations, keep on living. They coming. But they ought not to drive you away from God. They ought to drive you toward him. Because the Lord gives us the substance to endure. You want to know why it should drive us toward him? The trials and the tribulations of this world, why it shouldn't? Because this is what it does for those whose eyes aren't crossed. It drives you away from Jesus, away from God. When you start struggling with sin, you go away from Jesus and people. When you start struggling with the things of this world, for some reason we start relying on our own strength and we go away from Jesus and from the one who has all power and all strength. I don't understand why. Let the words of Jesus remind you why you need to get cl- As soon as you sin, run right to Jesus. As soon as there's trouble in this world, run right, fast, right to Jesus. Why? John 16, 33. This is what Jesus said. I didn't say it. Look what he says. He says, I've told you these things so that in me, not in anybody else, in me, you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. He promised it. It's coming. Keep on living. But what? Be courageous. Well, why be courageous, Jesus? I have conquered the world. Why you run to him? You experience defeat when you run from him. But in him you have success, victory, when you run towards him. Shame tends to fall off the faster you get to Jesus. Knowing you wallow in it, the farther you away from him you are. Lies tend not to sway you when you're closer to Jesus. You know when lies get you? When you're farther away from God. Oh, you're easy, susceptible. Sheep, far away from the flock. Easy. We have troubles in this world. We have troubles in the natural world. We have troubles in the spiritual realm. COVID and cancer is killing people. The racial tensions in this country at this particular point is like the 1950s and the 1960s. It's trouble. Violent crimes are up in the country. Drugs and alcohol continues to ravage homes. People are overworked, overlooked, underpaid, undervalued. The culture continues to persecute the church, undermining the word of God by attacking the uh, Christians in, in the word of God's past and denouncing his place in his present. It calls our Savior weak, yet it has no viable answers or solutions for its own plight. That's what weak sauce does. I got no answers, but you, that's what we do when we're we're far from God. Our lost culture does not have the power to save, but our faith, love, and hope ought to reside in a king who is mighty to save. And I'm not necessarily even talking about the king of my African-American heritage. 
God bless his soul. I'm talking about the king that that king bowed down to, that we ought to put our hope in because he himself is the king of kings and lord of lords, able to save, able to redeem, able to unify people from all tribes and tongues here under one banner. It's Jesus himself. We get to be courageous with our sin. We get to, we, we get to confess it because we're in Christ. No shame. We don't get to hide nothing up in here. We get to proclaim the gospel boldly to people, and they call us foolish, and we say, cool, but it's true. And some come to faith, caring not what this culture or this world says about us. Sooner or later, it will be illegal to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in areas of this world that it's already not illegal in. Sooner or later, the government will take pastor's sermons and sift them for what they can and cannot say, trying to legislate your faith. Our hope will never be in the laws to change. Our, our, our hope will never be in the government to shift so much that everything is all right. The laws and the government can't reconcile the broken people. We find a new idol when we do that. Oh, we need money. They get money, they worship money. Bad, they kill each other. Oh, we need education. You get education, cutthroat. You ever try to get into certain Ivy League schools? That mother cutthroat in the mud. All kind of sin flowing through that. Idol worship. We're going to keep doing it until we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross. Until we understand that we are equally laid bare at the foot of the cross, equally sinful, in need of a Savior who gives grace to the humble. Although you face trials in, in this world, I want to call you to draw near to Jesus because he said that he overcame it. He overcame and conquered the grave. He overcame and conquered sin. He enlightens our eyes to God's plan of salvation, which motivates us to endure. I want to say this. Let God heal the wounds that trouble has caused with the ointment of his love for you in the person of Christ. By just sitting under his word and soaking that mug in and being contemplatively in prayer. God, help me. What does this mean? How does this affect me? How should this guide me and change me? Just sit with the word and let it do its work in you. Don't overthink this thing. Sit down with the text. Lord, help me. Here's your word. Help me. If we get close to Jesus' pillar church, the word of God will bellow out from among us by default, the same way it did with the church at Thessalonica. Look at verse 7 and 8. As a result of all these things, this is, this is what Paul said about them, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. That's crazy. Not just Macedonia, all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Right? Their region and the neighboring region all have been impacted by the fruitful, faithful, Jesus-loving people in Thessalonica. Crazy. Happened then, can happen now. Verse 8, for the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. 
They were ambassadors of the embassy. They went everywhere proclaiming this gospel. And that's the desire and the hope for the people in the place of pillar is that we can bellow out from among us the gospel of Christ anywhere we go. And that the north side and the west side and the south side will be encouraged by the gospel that rings out from the east side. But you got to pray. Thank you, Eric. But you got to pray. got to pray when a hard, confusing cultural moment show up. We got to pray. God, help me. Show me. Empower our church. Empower our leaders to lead the culture, not follow it. Empower us. Help us. Show us. Help teach. Oh, you want me to be Barnabas? Okay. I'm going to encourage my brothers and sisters now. I'm going to call and encourage them if that's what God has called you and gifted you to be. What is it? But you can't be passive and let this be true. You can't be a benchwarming Christian and this be true. You can't be a fickle, inconsistent, spiritual person and this be true. God wants faithful. God will compel you to be faithful. Day in and day out. Because he will fill you and fuel you to be so. You want to be an impact in your community and in your soul? Pray. Focus on the word of God. No flattery needed, no lies permitted, just the word of God and power, changing the hearts and minds of men and women to the glory of God alone. This is what I want to be true of Pillar Church, verse 8 and 9. This is what I want to be true. Just read it and let it be true of you. Read it with your eyes. I'm going to speak it out loud. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. Verse 9. But they themselves report what kind of reception they had from you. Here it is. How we turned to God from idols. That's called repentance. Pray that we turn from, to God, from idols, to serve the living and true God. Verse 10. And I pray that we would wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus. He wants to be very clear who he's talking about. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. May this be the testimony of Pillar Church. May, our lamp, may her lampstand stand strong and burn hot through the generations. And may this pillar stand strong and endure. Remember verse 2, though. You got to pray. Father, would you compel our people to pray? Lord, would you compel us to no longer be content with getting direction from anyone but you? There are things about this world that are so beautiful and so awesome that you've instituted. They're great things. We can champion those aspects of, our, of each other's culture, aspects of, of each other's experiences that we get to celebrate. We get to, to lift and, and enjoy but it's human nature to deify those things. And oftentimes we, like the Pharisees, we add to the good things, things that are not of you. And so in the midst of us celebrating those good things, Lord, will we have the boldness and be prayerful enough to see and call out those negative things that we just simply cannot 
agree on or agree with. And our hope in all of that is not to be combative, combative or divisive. Our hope in that is to not seem like know-it-alls who are in some unique position. No, no, no. We're in a, no, no, no. We just want to obey you. If we're guilty of those things, you call us out equally. Lord Jesus, in this place, there are people watching online. There are people who need to be closer to you, who want to be closer to you, yet they are fickle at best, inconsistent in their faith walk. And the reality for some of us, some of, some of you watching at home and some of us here now, is that our faith is not living. Dead. But Jesus quickens the dead. Lord Jesus, those who are deceived into thinking that their faith is living, yet their faith is dead, would you awaken them in this moment? Would you save their souls? Would you give sight to the blind? Would you give life to the spiritually dead in this moment? Because for the first time, they see that salvation is in the name of Jesus to be made right with God and one another. That they can put down the facade of being something that everybody thinks they are, but they know they're not. We can be transparent together and lead one another closer to you. Father, would we be impactful in East Fort Worth? A group of people who love Jesus and empowered by his spirit. Where the word of God bellows forth. May this be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.